Would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians in the New Testament? If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one of the blue Bibles under the chairs in front of you. You can find Ephesians on page 946. And if you bring your Bible every week, you might want to put a bookmark in there because we're going to be there for a while on that uh, single page in your Bible. This morning, we're kicking off a new sermon series on the letter by the Apostle Paul written to the church in Ephesus, or the letter to the Ephesians. Um, Whenever we start a new series on a book of the Bible that we haven't treated on a Sunday morning before, I have a mix of thoughts. The first is prayerful. Lord, what would you have to speak to GRC in this season from this book? The second, so so there's anticipation, there's expectation that God's going to have a message for us. But at the same time, there's also um, this thought that uh, is captured by the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 4, where he says, who is equal to such a task? And so there's also, alongside anticipation, a little bit of intimidation. There's a reason why I've never preached from the book of Romans before, and it's because I don't think I'm up for the task yet as a preacher. I don't dare open the pages of Romans and walk us through uh, that amazing letter, uh, also written by Paul. And I think I might put Ephesians second or third on that list, uh, but I'm not getting any younger, and we've got to start somewhere. But the reality is, and I'd ask you to pray this with me, when we open God's Word, we trust that He's going to speak to us clearly through His Spirit. He is going to supply His people with exactly what we need, regardless of how um, weak or strong, as Karen pointed out to our children, the instrument or the mouthpiece may be. Uh, What I'd like to do this morning is simply read the first two verses to dip our toe into the letter, and then I want to spend our time looking at the big picture at the 20,000-foot level. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we open to this book, we again pray that your spirit would be mightily at work in us open our eyes to see your truth, to see your majesty, to see the resurrected Savior, open up our minds that we might understand and receive and be changed from the inside out, for we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Before we fully jump into the text of Ephesians, um, I want to provide a little bit of background And the most helpful place to find a little bit of background starts in the book of Acts. Earlier in the New Testament, Acts being a record of the life and ministry of the apostles in the growth of the early church. And um, we find Paul on his third missionary journey at the very end of Acts chapter 18, going through 19 and 20. And on that missionary journey, he ended up in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, known back then as Asia Minor, and you can see at the tip of the arrow um, the city of Ephesus on the western um, edge of uh, Turkey, on the eastern side of the Aegean Sea, across from what we would call Greece today. 
Ephesus was the fourth or fifth largest city in the world at the time. Its massive amphitheater held 25,000 people, an amazing capacity given the populations at that time. Ephesus was at the intersection of two continents. It was an influential, busy port city, and therefore it served as a gateway for the gospel to go to the nations. Ephesus was also home to all kinds of paganism, which included worship of the goddess Diana, also known as Artemis. The temple dedicated to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and if you've seen pictures of the Parthenon in Athens, Greece, or if you've had the privilege of visiting it, um, the temple to Diana was four times the size of the Parthenon, an amazing uh, scale. No wonder it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In Acts chapter 19, Paul almost gets killed in a riot because his preaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ was changing lives, was transforming people from the inside out, and it was, as a result, harming the local economy. Silversmiths um, incited the mob because their profits were starting to suffer. If Jesus alone is Lord, then why would you buy a little silver trinket of the goddess Diana to put on your fireplace mantle to worship? They drove him um, away, at least for a time. He spent two and a half years, though, ministering to the Ephesians and to the surrounding areas, um, longer time than any other place that he spent. One reason he stayed so long is described in 1 Corinthians 16, where he said, because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me. And... Um, the end of his personal ministry to the Ephesians ended up being in the mid-50s A.D., to just give you a sense of where we are in the first century. Years later, Paul was in a Roman prison awaiting trial. He would never walk free, and he knew it. And in that setting, he wrote the letters uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And that was around 61 or 62 A.D., In the first verse here in Ephesians, Paul addresses the church in Ephesus, but then in the rest of the letter, what's interesting is there are no other personal references uh, or specific uh, situations that he addresses, unlike almost every other letter of Paul. There are no unique situations, no problems that he's addressing, uh, no personal greetings by name, and it's all the more striking because he spent so long among the people of Ephesus. Why is this the case? Well, the background from the book of Acts, uh, again, gives us the best answer. Since Ephesus was a leading city in the region, and because Paul spent so, t- uh, so much time ministering there, Acts chapter 19 tells us that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord, Greeks being a reference to Gentiles. In other words, everyone li- uh, living in that region was exposed indirectly or directly to the gospel of Jesus Christ through Paul's personal ministry. And so it would make sense that when he wrote this letter, he meant for it to be circulated not just to this one particular congregation in the city of Ephesus, but to the surrounding regions, just like his letter to Colossians, which wraps up with this instruction towards the very end. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Paul the pastor 
having Ephesus in mind, no doubt with personal relationships and friendships and, and deep investment, but intending to pastor everyone in those regions who could benefit from the letter. The general application of the letter helps us 2,000 years later to listen as Paul is speaking to us. A second thing I want to um, bring to our attention as we cover some background uh, on this kickoff Sunday, I'll call opportunity in opposition. Opportunity in opposition. I mentioned Paul's explanation as to why he stayed so long in Ephesus, but here's the full sentence with what I would call a surprising ending. I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Here's my gut. Give 100 of us a pen and a piece of paper to complete the first part of that sentence in light of the last part of that sentence, and I'm pretty sure we get 100 answers like this instead. I am out of here because there are many who oppose me. I'm pretty sure almost all of us, if not all of us, would fill in the blank along those lines, um, thinking, I don't need this looking over my shoulder, wondering what kind of mob is going to attack me in the alleyway because I'm preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in opposition to their values and beliefs. But Paul thinks the exact opposite. He says, I'm staying despite the opposition, the persecution, the soul-wearying battle against political and spiritual and social enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm staying because, quote, effective work has opened to me, meaning lives are being changed. People are being transformed from the inside out into the likeness of the, of the Savior through faith in Jesus the Savior. And Paul says, I am willing to pay the ultimate price if necessary in order to be a part of seeing that continue. There's nothing more important. So when we are hip deep in the middle of details in Ephesians chapter whatever, I want us to keep in mind that this letter was written on death row in Rome, and Paul knew he was on death row. And I want us to keep in mind, and he was chained perhaps 24 hours a day to a rotation of Roman guards because this was an important political prisoner. He wasn't going anywhere. No privacy. And also keep in mind that the people to whom he was writing, these Ephesians whom he knew so well, also knew full well that what, what he had endured while he was in their midst. All of the attacks, verbal, physical, spiritual attacks he endured, and yet he persisted. He stayed in the battle. He kept faithfully serving God. When we think about gospel ministry, when we pray that we would discern and remain in the middle of God's will, when we want wisdom to choose what is best, when we ask God that we might live under His blessing, none of that brings a guaranteed easy life, let alone any guarantee of life itself. 
They're good things to ask for, to flourish, to experience spiritual vitality. But it is spiritually simplistic to think, as we do all too often, that when the going gets rough, our interpretation is accurate, that God's closing this door. I better go somewhere else, you know? God must not want me to go this way because He would clear the path for me. And it's spiritually simplistic on the other side of the coin to think that when life is easy, that the only interpretation is God's blessing. He intended for me to get this raise, this promotion, this new job, this change of life circumstance, this new apartment, this upgrade to my car, this, this new friendship that means so much to me. Could it not be that the devil knows exactly what he's doing? And he would go out of his way to make your life really easy and lead you down a brownie crumb trail. I never knew why anyone would follow breadcrumbs, you know. Lead you down a brownie crumb trail to spiritual destruction or at a minimum to spiritual ineffectiveness and irrelevance to get you out of the way. All the while, you and I thinking we're in God's blessing, but we're no longer dangerous for Jesus. Could it be? Not always. But do we ever allow for the the mental, spiritual room to be suspicious of something that's easy and to embrace something that's difficult? This Ephesian church was born in the midst of significant opposition. There were demonic powers at work. There were pagan beliefs um, against everything Paul was preaching. There were Jewish leaders who resented this former rabbi from turning the tables on them and claiming that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And yet Paul persevered and he saw incredible spiritual gospel fruit that likely impacts the church worldwide today. Not only because of Ephesus, but certainly in part because of two and a half years he invested among these people. Not despite opposition, this gospel fruit, but perhaps because of opposition. Here's one simple example. We're going to talk more um, through um, chapter 1 of Ephesians. Who is king and Lord? Is it Caesar or is it Jesus? Ephesus was also the center of Roman emperor worship. And the admirers of Caesar Augustus in this time would call Caesar Savior. But wait a second. Paul's calling Jesus Savior. Which is it? If there's no opposition, it's a strong signal that no one really cares. And why wouldn't anyone care? Because it doesn't matter in the end. If there were no opposition, right? Uh, You believe what you want. You want to worship Jesus as Savior? Great. Good for you. I'm going to worship Caesar Augustus as Savior. We each have our saviors. We're we're each happy. We're not going to bother each other. And and there would be no opposition because no one would care because everyone would believe it doesn't really matter in the end. Just be sincere. You know, be a good person. Pick your Savior. Pick your Lord. Pick your God. But there is opposition. And real and powerful opposition just as strongly suggests that truth and eternity and glory are at stake, and therefore lives are at stake, including the Apostle Paul's. You know, over the past four years, part of GRC's story has involved us realizing the end of this lease for this space. By the way, May 2018, 
uh, about seven months away. Um, we've been looking for a new space. We've been saying we need to find a permanent home. We started raising funds four years ago. Uh, we started praying that the Lord would open a door where there was none, praying for God to give us favor with sellers, with lenders, with uh, township boards. We've had obstacles pop up, roadblocks right in the middle of, of, of the direction we were heading in. We've had personal opposition rise up against us. Um, we've spent a lot of energy, for example, pursuing a, another building in Fairlawn in 2015, and in a very early 2016, um, the contract negotiations fell through, and everything that we had invested in, in terms of time and energy and a little bit of finances went down the drain. With our current building that is our uh, possession now, praise God, uh, as of April, um, we faced months of delays just getting on the zoning board's agenda so that they could consider giving us a variance. And as a result, throughout all of these challenges, we continue to have some funding challenges. As a result, Ken and I heard from here and there over um, throughout all these challenges, we heard, well, you know, if things are that difficult, maybe, maybe this isn't God's will. Maybe we're going down the wrong path. You know, maybe we should just stay and be limited here at Galway Place and, and uh, whatever happens, happens. You know, if, we, if our, all of our ministries are constrained, maybe that's where God wants us to be. But if you use that same litmus test for almost all of Scripture, the story of salvation would be very different. If you turn to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, for example, you'd have to say, well, maybe Abraham should have gone back to Ur, where he came from, where he was happy before God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees to come to Canaan because he never did get to settle in Canaan, the promised land, and make it his own. And maybe Moses, after spending 40 years tending stinky sheep in the wilderness with a really stale resume, maybe he shouldn't have considered this calling to incredibly influential leadership in confronting Pharaoh, the most powerful um, uh, king throughout the world at the time, and leading God's people out of slavery from Egypt to the promised land. Because how silly is that? You know, he knew nothing. He was a shepherd. And maybe every prophet who ever preached in the name of the Lord should have just given up because, quite frankly, no one was listening. <laughs> no one was obeying. No one was following. They, 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 had, they were ridiculed and marginalized and told to just shut up and go home. And fast forward because the, the Bible is chock full of failure and spiritual opposition, and attack, and difficulty, and suffering, we might say, maybe Paul should have just moved on from Ephesus, you know, shaking the dust off his sandals, as, as a, an ancient phrase uh, that shows up in the Bible says, and gone somewhere where people were really eager to listen to the preaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the thinking goes, surely God's blessing, and surely God providing the, the power of His Holy Spirit both mean that ministry works out the way we expect it to, right? There's fruitfulness. There's, there's the door open. There, there's the, the, the path cleared. You know, there's a lane. We just walk through it. And we would say, no, not at all the case. Why? For one thing, we follow in the footsteps of a suffering Savior. 
and Jesus had no cakewalk on His path to glory, why would we expect anything similar? Struggle reminds us that we're in a spiritual battle for souls with eternity at stake, and many will oppose the message of Jesus. And struggle reminds us that we are utterly and always dependent on the one who provides all that we need. Well, one more thing I want to share this morning. Um, It's an outline to set us on the path forward. If I had to outline the book of Ephesians with two words, I'd choose these, position and practice. Position and practice. Each of those terms neatly summarizes half of the book each. Position, chapters 1 through 3. Practice, chapters 4 through 6. And this is one way to break it down. Position, what I mean by position is a question of status and identity. Who are you? Chapters 1 into 2, new life in Christ. Second half of chapter 2 through chapter 3, new community in Christ. Okay? This is how God rescues His people. And this is how God forms His people in community. That's all position. Um, new life and new community are the roots. And so uh, the graphic that uh, Austin um, put together again for us highlights the root system. We're going we're gonna to spend the next few months underground, <laughs> focusing on the roots uh, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. That's the subtitle uh, based on the hymn, The Church's One Foundation. Okay. Uh, position has to do with roots. Who are we? Who does God declare us to be? And when we understand our identity, then we know how to live it out in practice, with action, with duties. Chapters 4 into 5, unity and purity. Chapter 5 into the end of the... Um, letter in chapter 6, submission and stability. Um, Here's what I mean by position, a little bit more focus, okay? One of Paul's favorite phrases that he uses more in Ephesians than in any other New Testament writing is in Christ. And it's deliberate that that phrase shows up in all four sections of the letter, okay? In Christ is a statement of identity, Suppose you are hosting Thanksgiving dinner for your family, and a turkey is coming out of the oven, and all the sides are getting nice and hot, and your family's in the kitchen salivating and chatting and, and having some appetizers, and some guy walks right in the front door, and you've never seen him before, and the music stops, and you keep sharpening that carving knife just in case. He's a stranger. Can we help you? He doesn't belong in the house, let alone at the dinner table. His identity is unknown. His position is outsider. And we don't mean to be rude or mean when we say that. He just doesn't belong, right? This is a family affair. You don't even need to ask the question, who are you? Because there's no good answer to that question. You know, the UPS guy is off on Thanksgiving. Even the Jehovah's Witnesses don't bother you on Thanksgiving Day. You know, who are you? He doesn't belong. But if your daughter, who's away at college, who had already decided she couldn't come home because the flights were too expensive or the schedule didn't work out and she had a big project, if she suddenly appears in the kitchen 
everything is the exact opposite, is it not? There's laughter, there's tears, there's hugging, there's kissing. And without any words, someone's squeezing in a chair at the table, and someone else is grabbing an extra plate and an extra place setting because even if you run out of food, even if there's no room at the table, you're squeezing her in. Why? Because her identity is daughter or cousin or sister. Her position is family member who belongs, and everything is right in that picture. She's an insider. In a few minutes, we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the question that each of us should be asking on a regular basis is a stark one. What right do I have to approach, let alone dine at the table of the king? Because I'm, I'm an outsider because of my sin. I, I've rebelled against the king. I, I've carved myself out of this um, intimate relationship with God through my, my thoughts and my actions and my words. I'm a sinner even considering approaching a perfectly holy God. And angels have every right to be whispering to us as we approach, what's he doing here? Because we don't belong. But the kingdom of God is unlike any other reality. The kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. It's the ultimate countercultural community. It makes no sense to rational minds that would try to put two and two together and figure out who belongs and who doesn't. Because if... Um, an angel were to greet you at the door and ask you the question, who are you? Really, the question underneath the question is, what right do you have to approach the king, let alone to dine at his table? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then the, um, the bold and confident and really the only answer you could possibly give is, I am in Christ. My position is insider, son, daughter, child of the king, declared righteous, forgiven, promised an inheritance alongside Jesus, the ultimate son, not because of anything I've done, but because of everything Jesus has already done. Not because I deserve this, it's, it's the exact opposite. But if you are in Christ, then the Father looks at you and He relates to you just as He looks at and relates to Jesus, who is the perfect Son. This is what we call union with Christ. What happened to Him, now it's as if it happened to you. If He earned the favor of the Father, it's as if you earned the favor of the Father. If he conquered death and rose to newness of life, it's as if you've conquered death and risen to newness of life, if you are in Christ. Again, not because of anything you've done, but because of everything Jesus has already done. And you are united to him by faith. You believe. You trust. And then perfect belonging and the Father's favor and delight and inheritance, and acceptance, and intimacy of relationship with God the Father Himself, despite the Christian's sinfulness, which has been nailed to the cross, all of those benefits are ours by being in Christ. 
So chapters 1 through 3 highlight this positional reality spiritually. This is who God declares you to be individually and then in community. This is who you are, identity, position. Now, chapters 4 through 6, live in light of who you are in practice. Let it overflow from you. Chapters 1 through 3 are going to lay out some incredibly rich theological truths. This, we're, we're going to feast on gospel foundations for weeks and weeks, but don't be misled into thinking that this is anything less than fully relevant to your nitty-gritty lives today. Um, and remember that this is a letter by a pastor to his congregation that he had planted, right? And, and to all the believers in the surrounding areas who are going to benefit from this pastoral letter. And if you want to get practical, trust me, it's coming on race relations, on spiritual gifts, on unity in the church, on marriage and parenting, on the spiritual disciplines, on spiritual warfare and the armor of God. It's all here in the book of Ephesians, but throughout it all, tying everything together is this calling to love, to know the love of Christ, and then to overflow with that love to everyone around us. That makes the last verse of the whole letter all the more sobering and attention-getting. This is how Paul ends Ephesians. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love, written in 61 or 62 A.D. Sadly, fast forward 30 years when the Apostle John is on an island and he gets a vision and he's writing Revelation. One to one and a half generations later, Jesus says this specifically to the church at Ephesus. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Grace and peace to those who love Jesus Christ with an undying love. That was the reality in 61-62, a few years after Paul had planted this church. What more encouragement could a pastor have to see the love of Christ overflowing within the people? who had been transformed by this love. And what grief, 30 years later, to see that they had turned away. Grace Redeemer Church, may we pay close attention to this lesson from church history recorded for our benefit here in Scripture. Grace Redeemer Church, may we revel in and renew our faith in gospel foundations. We never outgrow the the heart of the gospel, the foundational realities of the gospel. We never outgrow our need to remind ourselves again of these truths of who we are in Jesus and who God calls us, how God calls us to live in light of that. May we know who, know better who we are in Christ and then naturally and joyfully and obediently live in light of that God-given, Christ-bought glory-defining identity. Let's pray. Lord God, open our eyes, change our hearts, enable us to receive this word over these next months and uh, weeks and months. Lord, that we might not simply nod our heads and appreciate good writing and good godly exhortation, but let it change us, Lord. Let it transform us. Let it upend our lives if necessary. 
that we might be more like Jesus the Savior, that we might embrace everything that you intend for us to enjoy and to be in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.